I'm not sure about you guys, but I've recently gotten into a television show called Undercover Boss. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but the whole premise behind it is tremendous in which you've got a CEO of a corporation of some business who puts on a mask, puts on a costume, puts on a disguise, and he's followed around by some cameras and he begins to work as an employee at his own company. Starting at the ground floor, he begins building relationships and getting to know the employees and how they function and what happens. And the premise of the whole show is at the end of the one hour, the CEO takes the mask off and reveals himself as the CEO and the employees are utterly shocked to find out who they've been spending time with. It's a fascinating study on psychology and sociology and I just, I find it really entertaining. But here's what I found interesting. So when the mask comes off, the real person is revealed. As I think about an accusation that is regularly lobbed at followers of Jesus is that we are hypocrites. The word hypocrite is, in the Greek means to act. It's someone who is on a stage portraying one thing. You see, back in the days of the first and second century, Greece actors or would put on, uh, Greek actors would put on a mask in which they would portray a certain character. Well, the word carried over to people who would act one way in one circumstance, but be completely different in another. Unfortunately, within, even within our own culture, there are times in which believers will put on a front as if they spiritually have it all together and they're crushing it. But deep down inside their hearts, they know that they aren't. When we get to Acts chapter 5, we discover that hypocrisy is not just dangerous, it's deadly. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 5. We're walking through the book of Acts together as a faith family in this great historical narrative of Luke in which he's describing how the early church began. We saw back in chapter 1 where Jesus ascended up into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God the Father where he is interceding for you even now. And soon he's going to stand back up and return and come and rescue his bride, the church. You get to Acts chapter 2, we see where Simon Peter stands up at Pentecost after the Holy Spirit has come upon them. He preaches the gospel and 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. We see an incredible movement of the Spirit where thousands of people are believing the gospel. We saw back in chapter 3 where Peter and John are going into the temple for prayer time. And as they go in, they come across a lame beggar, a man who's been sitting there for a long time asking for financial help. And Peter says, gold and silver I have not, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And immediately the man is healed. He stands up. He goes into the temple with Peter and John leaping and jumping and praising God because he's been just experienced this miraculous healing in his life. We see that Peter and John leverage this crowd who gathers around this healed man and they preach the gospel, the resurrection. Well, there in the temple, the Sanhedrin, the great high court of Israel, doesn't like Peter and John preaching the resurrection. So they arrest them, put them in jail. And the next day, they bring them before the Sanhedrin, 70 men plus the high priest. And it's there that they begin telling them, hey, you're not going to preach Jesus. You're not preaching the resurrection. And Peter and John are like, yeah, that's not going to happen. 
We can't help but declare what we have seen and heard. We know the gospel is true. Well, the the Sanhedrin sends them out, warns them not to say anything. They go gather with the church. The place where they're praying begins to shake. The building is shaking as they're praying. It's an amazing work where God is working in and through the local church. Well, Satan does not like what's happening. He sees the movement of the spirit. He sees people following Jesus. And so he goes on the offensive. We've already seen where he begins to attack the church from the outside through persecution. But now, as we're going to see in the text, he is now going to begin attacking the church from the inside through hypocrisy. And that's what we see happening here in Acts chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. The scripture says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Then great Fear came on the whole church and all who heard these things. Now, we need to give Luke some props here because this historian is telling us not just the good things happening in the church, but also the bad things happening in the church. That he's not glossing over or putting up a front over the blemishes of the early church. That even among spirit-filled churches, the evil one is still at work. This morning, I want you to notice in the text the deadly danger of hypocrisy and how the gospel sets us free. The first thing I want you to see in the text is the deceit of duplicity in hypocrisy. Tony Merida, this pastor in North Carolina, he calls Ananias and Sapphira spiritual posers. They sold a piece of property and they are trying to be just like Barnabas back in chapter 4, verse 37. In fact, I think the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 go together. And Luke is comparing and contrasting Barnabas to Ananias and Sapphira. So what's the difference? I think the key is that instead of giving the full amount, Ananias, verse 2, he kept back part of the proceeds from the sale of the property. Now hear me on this. The sin is not that Ananias and Sapphira did not give everything that they had. What, what Ananias could have said, hey, Peter, Sapphira and I, we've talked about this. We've prayed about this. We're not financially in a position in which we can take all of the proceeds from the sale of the land and give it to the church. As much as we celebrate what God has done through Barnabas and his generous gift, we're just, we just can't do it right now. Man, the Lord would have blessed that. 
The Lord would have multiplied in offerings that's given out of humility, saying, here's transparency, here's where we're at. We, don't, we can't give all of it now, but that's not what happens here. Instead, both of them, they lie about the amount of money. They were intentionally deceitful. Why? Why are Ananias and Sapphira doing this? This week, as I was wrestling through this idea, I came up with four possible solutions or reasons. Possibly it was jealousy. They saw Barnabas' gift, and like Cain, they were jealous of their brother's offering to God. Or it was respect. They wanted respect in the church. They wanted people to be impressed by their generous gifts. Maybe it was praise. They wanted people talking about them, which people still talk about them. But they wanted people to pat them on the back and celebrate their offering. Or maybe it was recognition. They wanted the apostles to recognize them. They wanted people to say, man, look at these guys. Let's give them a trophy. Let's put a plaque on the fellowship hall because of their generosity. Well, whatever their motivation, at the root of their hypocrisy was pride. They wanted people to think something about them that wasn't true. They were hypocritical in their hearts. You see, religious hypocrisy is wanting to look good on the outside while being rebellious on the inside. Jesus regularly rebuked Pharisees for their religious hypocrisy. He called them hypocrites, brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but inside you're full of dead people's bones. Jesus would regularly call out those who would put up a religious veneer trying to cover up what was really in their hearts. My question to you is, have you put up a religious front to fool people? Do you act spiritual on the outside, but you have ulterior motives on the inside? Hear me on this. You can fool people. But you cannot fool God. God sees your heart. He sees past the veneer, past the mask, and He sees deeper here within. And for Ananias and Sapphira, there were serious repercussions to this deceitfulness. In fact, it's number two. It's the deadly consequences for hypocrisy. Like a trained prosecuting attorney, Peter asked Ananias probing questions, trying to uncover the truth. Look at verse 3. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. But before Ananias could answer, he drops dead right there on the spot. You see, this lie was not to people. He's not lying to the church. Who's the text say he's lying to? God. You're not lying to the church. You're lying to God. Because God knows right here what's in your heart. And when you lie to the church, you are lying ultimately to God. Because God, the Holy Spirit, is within the church. You see, when we lie, we are becoming like Satan himself. Jesus says in John 8, he is the father of lies. Whenever he speaks, he speaks his native language of lying. He has the inability to tell the truth. 
When we lie, exaggerate, manipulate, use our words to push people away from the truth, then we are aligning ourselves with Satan. Now, God is the exact opposite. God has the inability to lie. He's perfect in his nature, in his essence, in being as God. Numbers 23, 19, God does not lie. Titus 1, 2, God does not lie. Hebrews 6, 18, it is impossible for God to lie. You see, God is perfectly pure in all of his ways. He is holy. He is set apart from sin. He's righteous in all of his ways. And because he is God and because he cannot lie, he always tells the truth, which means when he speaks, you can trust what he says. He's trustworthy. He is the one you can believe when he speaks into your life through his word. And as followers of Jesus, as those who align with Christ, so too are we to be the same. Paul says it like this in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow up in every way into him who is the head Christ. He goes on to say, therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. You see, speaking the truth is a mark that you belong to Jesus. Question are you speaking the truth in every area of your life? When you're at work, are you being accurate and truthful? Are you being precise with the words that come out of your mouth? May you and I be a people that are regularly and consistently speaking the truth, regardless of the consequence. That if it takes us telling a lie or, or fibbing or moving numbers or trying to make ourselves look good, we're not being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hypocrisy is taking root here in the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira, and they were lying about their giving, and it proved to be deadly. You see, Acts 5 reminds us of so many things. There's so many things we can grab hold of from this text. One of the things I want you to see is that God takes our holiness seriously. Over and over and over throughout Scripture, God commands His people, Be holy, for I am holy. God calls us to be like Him. Like when Paul says in Ephesians 5.1, Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. As children who love our good, good Father, whom we just sang to, we are to imitate what he is like. And he continually calls us to holiness, that we would be set apart from sin. We're set apart from the things of this world. That as you and I, we pursue Christ's likeness. That in, it's in, within the character of who we are because of the Holy Spirit. You see, the moment you believed the gospel and trusted in Christ, when you were six years old at vacation Bible school, at your kitchen table, in your bedroom, on the side of a road, in a church, the moment you believed the gospel, the Holy Spirit came and took up residence in your life. He has sealed you until the day of redemption. That indeed the Holy Spirit lives here permanently and forever. And one of the things he does is he changes your nature. You become a new creation in Christ. Old things pass away, new things come. And so now, obeying God and pursuing holiness is no longer a drudgery, it's a delight. It goes from a have to to a want to. Like, I want to be like Jesus. I desire to become more and more like Christ. Well, where does that desire come from? The Holy Spirit. 
He's taken up residence here and you pursue after Jesus. You're becoming more and more like him as you pursue after Christ. You see, it is the heart of God that we become more and more like his son. And yet, as we see in the text, God is serious about our purity. For this is not the first time that God has killed people for their sin. You go to Leviticus chapter 10. Aaron's two oldest sons sinned against God in the temple and God consumed them with fire and they died right there before the Lord. In Joshua chapter 7, following the destruction of Jericho, a man named Achan steals some of the things that should have been devoted to the Lord. And his sin is found out and he and his family are killed for their disobedience. And here in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they lie to the Lord and God kills them. God takes our holiness seriously. But also, God will protect the purity of his church. Ananias and Sapphira's death was meant to imprint upon the early church's minds and hearts the seriousness of God. That God quickly removed the spiritual cancer from the body of Christ before it spread throughout the entire church. Now, some have wondered, that seems like a pretty harsh penalty. Instant death, that's pretty severe. Not at all. God is protecting His church. Remember the church was in its infancy. Like a newborn baby, this is a pivotal time in the church's history. If a little bit of leaven gets into the dough, if a little virus gets into the software, if a little sin gets into the church, then the entire church would be affected. Sin in the camp of the church could bring devastation to the people of God. This week, I read uh, that experts in flight navigation have a rule of thumb called the 1 in 60 rule. The 1 in 60 rule. For every one degree that a plane is off its mark of destination, it will miss its mark by 60 miles. So if you're on a flight from Birmingham to Atlanta and your destination mark is off by just one degree, you will totally miss the airport, even the very city itself. If you can imagine a flight across country, that if you're off the destination point by just one degree, you will miss the destination by hundreds of miles. Well, here is the early church just beginning the flight. And the Lord knows that if they're off of the destination of Jesus by just one degree... They're going to completely miss the destination of Christ himself. And what we see here in the text is that God is protecting the purity of his church. He wants to bring his people safely to his celestial city. He wants to bring us into his new kingdom. And he knows that if sin takes root into the heart of the church, eventually the people will be off the mark, not just by one degree, but by a whole lot. And so what we see happening here in the text is the early church is being infected with just a little bit of sin and it could have brought devastating consequences had the Lord not intervened. But the third thing we see here in the text is that God wants our hearts, not our hypocrisy. God is not interested in your acting ability. He is not impressed by how well you can look good here and yet your heart be so far from Him. He's not interested in your hypocrisy. 
God wants your heart. You know, see, the church is not a place where we put, uh, our, we put it up on our Instagram highlight reel, which isn't real in the first place, by the way. You're getting other people's highlights, not the real life. And we are, as a church, this is not us. We're not a people who are trying to impress each other. This is not the culture that we see throughout the New Testament. The, the church is a gathering of believers who are a hospital for sinners in which we point people to the great physician. We are a group of people who say together, I am weak, but Jesus is strong. And we keep pointing each other to Jesus. We keep going back to Christ. We are a people who are continually running to Jesus saying, I can't do this without you. When Ananias laid his offering at Peter's feet, his heart was full of hypocrisy and God saw right through it. You see, God's not impressed by a religious show. God is impressed by a heart that is soft and tender and open to him. That if you have a broken and contrite heart, the Lord is like, that is what I'm after. Somebody who's not trying to impress people. It's not people who are trying to be religious on the outside. But from the heart, they treasure Jesus above all things. Uh, this verse, I've, I've mem- been working on memorizing it and Man, it's just, it's got hold of me. Hebrews eleven six. 6. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God. And I don't have it memorized yet. <laughs> Since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists. And he rewards those who earnestly seek him. God's after your hearts. God desires your heart, not your hypocrisy. Not your Instagram self. Not the self that you're trying to portray. Not you with your makeup on. It's just you. He loves you. And he treasures you. And he delights in you. Not who you think you are and not what you can do for him. The Lord delights in you. And it's amazing how God is after our hearts, not after our hypocrisy. But you know what's scary to me about this text? Is that Satan can use God's people to accomplish his purposes. Though as followers of Jesus who have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, we cannot be demon-possessed because the Holy Spirit is there. We cannot have Satan come into us. It can't happen because the Holy Spirit is there. And yet, if we're not walking in the Spirit, if we're walking in the flesh, if we're not daily abiding in Jesus, if we're not in regular fellowship with the church, if we're not daily denying ourselves and picking up our cross and following Jesus, then you and I are in danger of being used by Satan to accomplish his purposes. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter at Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16? Jesus told him, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem where the Son of Man is going to suffer and die and rise again on the third day. Scripture says Peter pulled him aside and says, by no means, Lord, am I going to let you do that? And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Peter had good intentions. He's trying to protect Jesus from death. And yet Jesus knows what's happening behind that pretense. He's looking at the heart. And you and I, we are in danger. That if we're not walking in humility, if we're not walking in grace, 
If we're not daily abiding in Christ, if we're saying no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit, we're in danger. And this, this is terrifying to me. That as, as your pastor and your shepherd, that the enemy could use me and he can use you. But here's the beauty, is that when we humble ourselves, we stay close to Jesus and one another, I think grace is going to hold us fast. God will enable us by His Spirit to unite us and protect us from being used by the enemy. But what we see here is not just all that happens with Ananias and Sapphira. It has far-reaching implications, which is number three, the dire result of hypocrisy. Verse 11, Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. Word spread throughout the church, even throughout Jerusalem, that Ananias and Sapphira lied and died. And now everyone is wondering, oh snap, am I next? Is there sin in my life in which I'm going to drop dead? Is there something going on in my heart in which God's going to take me out to? And because of what just happened, it's created this healthy fear of God in which the church is examining themselves. Oh my goodness, am I abiding in Jesus? Am I a follower of Christ? In fact, Paul encourages the Corinthian church towards this in 2 Corinthians 13.4, in which he says, examine yourself. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. You and I, as followers of Jesus, we need to examine our hearts and our lives and see, are we genuinely hidden in Christ? Are we believing the gospel? Because God forbid you get to the end of your life and you go one-on-one with God and you think that you're good when you're not. Talk about a tragedy. What's most important is, are you hiding in Jesus now? Are you hidden in Jesus now? And are you walking with him? You see, this tragedy that happens in Acts 5, it creates this fear that grabs hold of the church. And here's what's amazing. Your sin will always find you out. As much as you want to cover up your sin, God loves you too much to let you sin successfully. He will take what's in the dark and He will bring it to the light. Not because He wants to shame you. Not because He's against you. It's because He loves you. Because he knows that you cannot walk in unity and fellowship with him when you've got sin hiding in your heart. That what you do in isolation when no one else is watching, he knows, he sees, and he's saying, don't go there, take it out of the dark, bring it into the light. Allow me to heal you with my gospel. I want you to see what my son's blood purchased for you. I want you to see the power of the cross in Jesus and how he is sufficient not only to forgive you of all unrighteousness, but to empower you to walk in his victory. This is what God is inviting us to as followers of Jesus. It's not to take our sin and hide it, but to bring it into the light and allow him to work in and through that by the exposing of their sin and allowing him to work. You see, church discipline is a beautiful thing. It's painful, it's awful, it's difficult, and yet the church is protected from sin and God's people begin walking in the victory because they realize, oh man, if I don't stay faithful to Jesus, if not, I'm not abiding in Christ, then I am in danger. So the question is this, how can you and I stay away from hypocrisy? 
How can we prevent hypocrisy from taking root in our hearts? Let me give you four ways. Four ways to help prevent hypocrisy from taking root in your heart. The first is this, remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. You and I have to continually keep going back to a bloodstained cross. Because when you stand before a bloodstained cross, you realize there's no swagger, there's no pride, and there's no hypocrisy. You see, when we are reminding ourselves of what Jesus went through for us, it reminds us that, my goodness, I need to make sure that my heart is humble and right before him. And I got to keep humbling myself and keep coming back to Jesus for more and more grace. And by the way, he is an avalanche of grace that he provides for you as you continually come to him. And when we begin to realize that our hypocrisy cost Jesus his life, it begins to change us. When we realize that, oh my goodness, uh, God sees me for who I am. He can see past the veneer, past the mask. He sees right into my heart. And so now I'm going to come out and say, Lord, because of what you did for me on the cross, I'm not going to stay in hiding. Because of your public demonstration of love through the cross, I'm not going to be someone who's going to act one way and think and believe in something else. We remember the gospel. We keep coming back to Jesus. You see, the gospel is not just what saves you on the day of salvation. The gospel is also what sanctifies you and makes you more like Jesus. When you and I are 95 years old and barely hanging on to this thread of life, this life by thread, we're still going to be going back to the gospel saying, Jesus believed, Jesus bled and died for me, and I believe it. And I believe him. And I'm going to keep going back to a bloodstained cross. If you don't want hypocrisy taking root in your heart, remember the gospel. Secondly, is regularly confess your sin to God and one another. Okay, now I'm getting uncomfortable, Kenneth. The word confess means to agree. You agree with God. Get honest with the Lord. Tell him everything because guess what? He already knows. He's just waiting for you to let him know that you already know that. You confess. You bring it out and say, Lord, man, here's, here's my life. Here's what I said. Here's what I did. Here's the attitude of my heart. Here's how I treated this person. God, I, I was, oh, oh, awful. There's a groaning. Romans 8, right? Oh, but Lord, I'm going to bring it to you. And I'm going to ask you, Lord, would you, would you heal me with your gospel? Would you wash me? That if I confess my sins, you tell me in 1 John 1, 9, you are faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. That's a promise you made to me, and so I'm going to grab hold of that promise. That you're going to make me forgiven, clean, and new when I come and bring what's in the dark and I bring it into the light. But hear me on this. You need people in your life that you can confess your sin to. Women, you need sisters in your life that you can confess sin to. Men, you need brothers in your life that you can confess sin to. And if you don't have those kinds of relationships, I want to encourage you to get into a life group because there you're going to find friends. You're going to laugh a lot. You're going to eat a lot. You're going to study the Bible a lot. But you're going to begin forging some really valuable relationships of building trust with people that you can confess sin to. I've got a group of men in my life that I meet with in which over a Chick-fil-A table, I confess sin. And I bring forth my anxiety and my insecurities and my fears. And I tell them all the ways I feel like I'm failing the Lord. 
and there's beauty and there's trust and we talk with one another and we encourage one another and we pray for one another. I've got a group of brothers in which I could just, hey guys, here's my phone. Look at whatever you want. You can call my wife anytime you want. You can ask her anything you want. You have complete and total access to my life. What is this? This is what Christian community looks like. It's followers of Jesus who are not hiding our sin. We're bringing them out into the light. James 5 tells us, confess your sins one to another. Oh, what a gift when you have people in your life that you can confess your sin to. Thirdly, you're going to throw something at me for this one. Invite rebuke. Proverbs 9.8, a wise man loves rebuke. Proverbs 24, an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. You and I have weaknesses. We have blind spots. We have areas in our life, our personality, and our character in which we need someone to say, you're being an idiot. You're being selfish. You're being prideful. Man, your tongue is sharp. You're cutting people with words you're saying. You need people in your life and you invite it. You ask for it. Can I encourage you that if you're married, Invite your spouse into that space and say, I want to invite you the freedom to call out areas in my life that don't look like Jesus. And your response is, well, that's just the way I am. No. You have the Holy Spirit who's within you. You need to open yourself up vulnerably to your spouse and say, you have freedom to speak into my life in ways that don't look like Christ. Ways I'm being selfish, prideful, arrogant. I lack faith. I lack trust. And it's not one in which in your marriage you're continually nitpicking or saying, oh my goodness, did you just blow it? But there's a sense in which you're you're postured with humility saying, man, you can speak into my life because you know me better than anybody. I want to encourage you, uh, parents, uh, your kids can sniff out hypocrisy like that. And one thing I want to encourage you to do is to invite your children to have the freedom to call you out. Okay, now, Kenneth, what in the world are you teaching? What is this? I've gone to my children and I've said, at any time, you see me not looking like Jesus with my words or my actions, you have the freedom to call me out. But you have to do it in the spirit of Galatians 6.1, with gentleness and respect. And their opportunity is to do it in private, pull me aside and say, Dad, this did not look like Jesus. A while back, it was a Saturday night, and one of my, I was in my study. I was reviewing my sermon for the next day. I was getting prayed up and getting my mind ready. And my son came into my office in which he said, Dad, can I talk to you for a minute? I was like, yeah, sure, buddy. And he said, the way that you said something today, it really didn't look like Jesus. My flesh was right there saying, what's wrong with you? But I, in that moment, I was like, no, 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 no. There's value here. And I said, hey, buddy, help me. What, what, what did you see? And he began explaining ways in which my tone just did not honor Jesus. And y'all, it was humbling. But I said, hey, man, thank you so much for having the courage to tell me. And I love you. And we prayed together. And then I went to his siblings. And I said, hey, guys, your brother just called this out in my life and I want you guys to know this is what I did and I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Now, do you think my children's trust of me went up or down? Parents, if you will humble yourself before your children, 
and invite them to speak into your life, their trust only goes up because they're able to speak into what they already know is true. You and I as followers of Jesus, as we posture ourselves with humility, we invite rebuke because it's like a kiss on the lips. It's a good gift. Fourth and finally, let's cultivate a culture of grace with Westwood. I hope that people when they visit here aren't like, oh my gosh, I've got to put on a front. I've got to act like I've got it all together. I need to make people believe something about me that I know deep down isn't true. Can we just right now just agree that's not us? We are not a place for perfect people. If you are broken and you are still struggling with sin, welcome to Westwood. And Jesus is the one we weekly know, daily go before and say, we've got to have you. That we are all a mess apart from Jesus. And I am so glad you're here because as the chief of sinners amongst this best church in the whole wide world, I'm still in desperate need of Jesus. And so are you. And so let's allow the culture of love and humility of transparency and authenticity, authenticity take place, one in which we know we're getting there when we confess our sins to one another and we're not fearful of what's going to happen after that. We know we're making progress. We know we're growing in grace that when we say something sharp to someone, we immediately like, oh, wait a minute, time out. That did not sound like Jesus. Will you please give me grace? Y'all, that's a win. Let's spike a football moment. That's growing in grace. It's a culture of love and trust and humility. And it doesn't mean we're not going to sin. And it doesn't mean that we're not going to sin against each other. It's the fact that we know that grace is greater and we're going to repent and ask one another for forgiveness. And then we're going to continue to march, march forward arm in arm, right? It's a culture of grace that saturates a people who are madly in love with Jesus. The writer of Amazing Grace, I'm drawing a blank on his name, Newton. John, thank you, Christy. John Newton, he wrote Amazing Grace. He's at the end of his life, and he said these words, I know these things so clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is an even greater Savior. When you and I are headed for home, rounding third, we're going for home, we're still going to be saying, oh, what a wretched man that I am, but oh, how sweet is Jesus. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to? What's the impact point? It's this. Take off your mask, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus. It's hard to put on a facade to act when you stand next to a bloodstained cross. And that's who we are. Or followers of Jesus who keep going back to Jesus for grace and we're taking off the mask, we're taking off the pretension, we're humbling ourselves and we're saying, Jesus, this is who I am. And he promises, I love you. I will receive you. I will accept you as mine. And so will my church. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow me.